This is Dr. Trivuli with the Glial Goddess Podcast. And today I have Dr. Jeff Lacoven here to talk to us about how nutrition and integrative wellness can optimize recovery time for soft tissue injuries. I am so excited to talk to this guy because he is a chiropractor, naturopath, and acupuncturist. He graduated from Los Angeles College of, of Chiropractic, and he has a bachelor's degree in biology, as well as a doctorate in chiropractic, master's in nutrition, and in acupuncture. So he definitely, as well as a naturopathic physician, so he's definitely got a lot of um, Northwestern experience uh, in, in clinical education at different institutions, as well as a lot of clinical education in sports and nutrition. So Dr. Lacoven, he specializes in, in, he specializes in treating musculoskeletal pain and sports injury. He does a lot of, uh, trigger point injections, acupuncture, dry needling, manual therapies, corrective exercise and nutrition, which we're going to focus on more of the exercise and the nutritional aspects of things today. We're going to go into conversations about strain and sprain and what what are common nutrition deficiencies we see in high-performance athletes, how much is too much exercise, how much is not enough, um, how can we balance our oxidation redox from exercise and recovery and injury, uh, and then OT, OTP, oh, excuse me, OPT and kinetic chain assessment for supporting more of the the rehab exercise aspects of of recovery. So this is going to be exciting. I'm so excited to talk to him today about his expertise and his clinical experience working with athletes. So Dr. Lakoven, what is the difference between a strain and sprain? Okay. So like the most common definition would be a sprain is, is more to a joint and it's going to involve ligaments uh, and it could involve muscles to some extent, because at that point with a sprain, you're going to have a significant amount of damage. So for example, like uh, an ACL ligament in uh, a knee injury, let's say a football player is, uh, is being tackled and somebody hits uh, his or her knee and it causes a, a significant amount of trauma, it's going to affect the ligament integrity. And so you have that the ACL or PCL or MCL are going to be overstretched. And depending on the degree of that overstretching, you could have uh, like a, a minimal tear, a partial tear, a complete tear, and that could end up requiring a surgical procedure. Versus a strain is typically more of a tendon or muscle injury. And that um, probably is a, a little bit less damage in a, in a sense, but certainly can be something that could cause a lot of dysfunction and, and pain. But the, the therapies are, are um, you know, generally going to be similar to some extent from my approach in, in terms of trying to get a lot of blood to the area and um, mobilize the area and, and um, stimulate a healing approach or a, a healing result. But in general, if you want to like uh, think of it as one is a more of a joint and ligament, one more of a tendon and muscle. Mm-hmm. So inner and outer kind of thing, deeper and superficial. Um, curious. So with, with, uh, recovery time, do you see with like strain and springs all, do you typically see in your population that they go together? They, they can for sure. Like you can have like, um, somebody who, who sprains their ankle, for example. Right. Mm-hmm. 
So let's say like it's an inversion sprain of the ankle. So you're, uh, you're stretching, overstretching like the peroneal longus, peroneal brevis, and some of the lateral aspects of the, of the ankle joint. So those muscles are going to be involved, but then you're going to have some ligament and uh, ligament damage as well that you're going to have to deal with. Okay. So, and in that example with, um, I think it's important to bring out with like ligament injuries, um, what is the difference between healing time and um, actually even re-injury versus a strain? So with, um, you got to think the, the ligament tends to be less vascular. So it, it's a little bit more difficult to deal with in terms of healing time. So it can, it can take longer mm-hmm. uh, depending on, again, remember you can grade them, right? So if it's just like a grade one, so just a little bit of a stretch, Maybe not as long, but if it's something where there's a complete rupture and requires surgery, now we're talking about, you know, weeks to months of, of healing time. Yeah. And a lot of recovery exercise and uh, stability support, right? Yeah. And then, you know, also depends on, on nutrition, somebody's general state of inflammation. Are they re-injuring things? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what are they doing with their rehab? Are they getting any therapy? That kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's important. So like the age of the person, the vitality, the chronic conditions, all yeah. of those into the nutritional status. So what are some common, um, you work with, with, um, athletes and, and a lot of people that are active, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So what are some common things you see in disuse with, with some of the people you work with? So on a typical day, I'll see any combination from like, uh, like a baseball athlete, like a young athlete I'm treating right now, who's got, um, tennis elbow yeah. so overuse. So I'm going to see that, but I'm also going to see, um, somebody who has poor ergonomics and does a lot of this all day long. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, lots of tech neck, right? So people who are like this all the time, <laughs> cross syndrome, I see that, um, you know, uh, neck, back, I see pretty much every day, almost every joint, somebody's coming in with a joint problem that I'm dealing with. And so um, it's either going to be a sprain strain or like a, a repetitive strain injury, a sports injury. Um, somebody has chronic pain post-surgical, uh, maybe that they didn't have proper healing, um, the whole gamut of, of, uh, of injuries. Okay. So let's go into like, let's go, let's, Break down a case. So case of someone with, um, let's talk about tennis elbow. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So tell me about kind of your approach with the person and the personalized approach and the integrated approach you take. Okay, sure. Okay. So, you know, obviously first off, take a history and see um, what's going on. Like how did it start? What's the origin of it? Are they still doing things to perpetuate it? Right. Um, and then look at perpetuating factors. So that could be like, is there um, something nutritional maybe that they're missing that could be uh, perpetuating this? Is there a structural problem? Um, and, or is there like a lot of stress going on? So, or are they getting inadequate sleep? You know, these are all things that I want to look at from a holistic perspective, right? And then um, let's say they're uh, vegan, right? Or vegetarian, they might be missing some micronutrients or even some essential fats that could delay the healing process. So once I got a good picture of this person and their, their, um, their history, then we'll do an examination. So somebody who has tennis elbow, I'm gonna do an upper quarter screen. 
So that's going to entail looking at their cervical range of motion, right? Because you know all the nerves here that are coming down here is T5, C6, right? So somebody lacks optimal range of motion at the neck, there's going to be some what's called regional interdependence. So the joints that are distal to the, to the cervical spine, like the shoulder joint, the elbow joint, the wrist, they can all be affected downstream. So, um, so I want to look for range of motion of the neck, uh, maybe do some orthopedic tests to see if there's any nerve root compression that's causing some referred pain patterns, right? Uh, then I'm going to look at a range of motion of the shoulder and then elbow and then wrist. So I'm going to address all those faulty uh, range of motion patterns. So maybe there's some muscles that are inhibited or are underactive muscles that are overactive and tight. And then the nervous system, once it has this, like uh, these dysfunctional soft tissue relationships, it's going to change the movement pattern in order to produce movement, but it's going to be dysfunctional. So I'm trying to uncover these dysfunctional movement patterns and then um, address them through, through therapies. Yeah. Oh, that's a great approach. So looking at like you start from where everything begins and distal and kind of analyzing the whole girdle. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Because it's like, it doesn't all kind of play into it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You got to look at the whole thing. So like, so, so for example, I have a patient now with tennis elbow. I'm, I'm treating his neck. So I'm going in and dry needling some of the uh, paraspinals in his neck and then um, I'll flip him over and do some points um, that are local with some electroacupuncture to the lateral epicondyle and then also around the wrist area just to increase range of motion. Mm -hmm. I'll do some deep soft tissue work to all these areas and some joint mobilization. Wow. And so what do you what do you see with the with the dry needling? Let's talk about that in this case. What is that really addressing there? Is it resetting things? Yeah, okay. So um Think of, um, okay, so imagine if you will, okay, uh, a straight line, okay, okay, or a pole. And on either side of the pole, you have something that's supporting the pole, okay? We'll call those muscles, right? So let's say the pole's tilting to one direction, okay? And it's tilting because the muscle is pulling it, it's overactive, okay? Short, okay? The other muscle on the other side is underactive or neurologically inhibited, okay? So that's, that's how I'm viewing the muscles. So now the nervous system is creating some faulty movement because you don't have a joint that's positioned pro properly and you have muscles that aren't functionally optimal, right? Because in order to have neuromuscular efficiency, like the ability to produce and reduce force and stabilize in all the different planes of motion, you have to have an optimal length and tension relationship in the muscles, right? Good point. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm restoring that. So what the needling does in a short muscle, it's going to go in there. It's going to create a little twitch and it's going to help that muscle to relax. So it's more amenable to like a stretch mm -hmm. and the muscle that's over. So underactive and needs to be turned on, the needling is going to help to create some sensory information there and help to turn that back on. So now I've got muscles that are more amenable to strengthening and lengthening, and then I can do some joint manipulation to help to, to create that more uh, optimal movement. So this is kind of like a guided reciprocal inhibition. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. So with, um, so basically think of like with reciprocal inhibition, let's go to like um, the low back, for example. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's have somebody has low back pain. Okay. 
And um, you and I can both have low back pain, but for different reasons, right? I mean, everybody comes in with different reasons. So you, you have to like figure out what, what's the difference between mine and yours, okay? So let's say I do an overhead. Let's say I ask you to bend over and touch your toes. Now you're a yoga, a yoga person, right? Yeah. If you bend forward and touch your toes and put your hands on the ground, you probably don't have too much tension in the posterior chain, right? Right. So right? So, ten, let's, so, so really going and doing a lot of work in the back just is going to be symptomatic, right? Yeah. Let's say I have you do some extension or you tell me, hey, I'm having problems doing cobra or I'm having problems doing pigeon, right? Then it's going to give me more information on which muscles are particularly overactive. So let's say I have you do uh, some extension and that hurts, okay? Mm -hmm. So now I'm thinking, okay, what's going on in the front? So now I'm going to do a, a movement screen, an overhead squat assessment. I'm going to watch you squat, okay? And let's say you have like a low back arch, so an increase in your anterior pelvic tilt, okay? And a forward lean. Mm -hmm. So something's pulling you forward and something's allowing you to be pulled forward. Mm -hmm. So then I'm going to break that down with range of motion and muscle testing. In a lot of cases, what I find is you have overactive hip flexors, so TFL, rectus, psoas, right? And then underactive hip extensors, the glute max being the primary one. So when you have that scenario, you have uh, altered reciprocal inhibition and synergistic dominance. So what that means is you have uh, synergistic dominance. So the synergists for the back extensors of the hamstrings and the low back erectors. So they're going to they're going to be working overtime. Yeah. Glute max that's not working right. So what's going to happen is they're going to they're going to tighten up and cause pain. But if you go just after those muscles and don't hit the front, then you're just going to be chasing this thing over and over again. Yeah. So again, emphasizing, looking at the whole and analyzing what's hypertonic and, and hypotonic. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a really, really very detailed analysis too. I'm sure you pick up on little things that a lot of people miss with this. Huh? Yeah. It's, you know, it's, um, so my journey with this was actually through NASM. Are you familiar with NASM, National Academy of Sports Medicine? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm familiar with them, but I'm not part of their organization or the NFS. Yeah, okay. So um, about 15 years ago, well, maybe even more than that, um, Dr. Randy, you might know, came to my office and he was pre-suffering with me. And he showed me a book called Training for the New Millennium. And so I, I ended up looking through the book and found that it, it was a, it was written by a guy named Mike Clark, who started, uh, was one of the founders of the, of the um, NASM kind of programming, right? He's a physical therapist. So I went up and ended up taking a lot of their courses, becoming a certified personal trainer, going through their corrective and performance stuff. And I got so interested in this. I noticed at one point that they were looking for trainers to, to uh, become uh, instructors so I went through the instructor training process and have taught for them for about 10 years, but it's really their process and assessment that really kind of changed my practice from a, an exercise perspective. Yeah. Cool. So you teach that. Do you still teach that? Yeah. When COVID's not on. <laughs> yeah. Well, so yes, but right now there's pause. <laughs> yeah. Right now there's everything's like uh, online now with, with that, but um, I have taught, yeah, I teach in um, primarily in Washington now, but I was going all around the country. There's probably like a dozen of us, maybe 20 of us master instructors that will teach the programming. Awesome. And But you're using it every day in practice, right? I use it every day. I use the assessment. I use the, um, the rehab strategy. So the rehab is really cool. Okay, so 
you know, somebody's going to come into my office. I'm going to identify all those things that we just talked about with overactive and underactive muscles, right? So then what, right? I need to give them a specifically tailored rehab program to address those things, right? So the NASM corrective exercise model involves, besides the assessment that we talked about, um, four things, inhibit, lengthen, activate, integrate. Mm -hmm. So you inhibit muscles with some kind of pressure like foam rolling or tennis balls, okay? And then once you inhibit that muscle, so that pressure stimulates Golgi tendon organs and muscle spindles to relax, right? Mm -hmm. So now once they relax, you do a static stretch. And then you activate the muscle on the other side. And we taught that muscle that was overstretched. So you turn that back on, right? Yes. And then you integrate new movement patterns with multiplanar dynamic types of motions that are going to help to groove new motor patterns that are more efficient. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really awesome that you get to do that. So, um, like, going back to, like, like with the tennis elbow case, sure. is it when you're, you're – let's talk about how this is applied in real time. Is this someone you're doing that with the activation and integration too? Um, yes. Okay. So let's talk about how you go about that in terms of how long uh, it would take to work with a person to, to shift their movement patterns and, and recondition that. Okay. So first visit's going to be an hour where you do all the assessment and then you do treatment. Okay. And then what generally what I'm going to do is I'm going to see somebody a couple times a week for a couple of weeks to see how they're doing. Right. And to make sure that my assessment of their, what's going on is, is correct. And then I'll give them the exercises and I'll review them in the office and watch them do it. And then they'll take those exercises and, and do them at home. Uh, some cases people want to be you know, monitored and, and have me watch them do the exercises. And in, in, in those cases, we can do that too in office as well. Okay. It doesn't take a lot of, of a high tech equipment. So a lot of this could be body weight or bands. That's awesome. Yeah. Right. So, and a lot of people, meaning a lot of people can do this too. Uh, everybody can do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Okay. So a couple office visits, then you help them understand how to do the techniques that you teach correctly. Okay. Uh, um, in an instance that they're not progressing, where do you go? Okay. So then let's look at, um, you know, those perpetuating factors again. Right. So, so um, Janet Travell, she wrote the, the trigger point um, handbook, if you might familiar with her. So she talks about these perpetuating factors and she, she think of a triangle, okay? So you have psychological, could be stress, right? Could be depression. You have biochemical and you have structural. So I'm gonna look at all those different things to see what, what might be going on that might be a problem. Now, right now I have a patient who's uh, 13. She's uh, like a synchronized swimmer. And she's got bilateral shoulder pain um, and she has, she feels better after the treatment. She's in physical therapy in our office as well, but she continues to uh, become re-injured unless she gets adequate rest. Cause she's doing five hour types of training sessions. Mm. She's overtraining. Her growth plates aren't closed. She's still growing. Right. And so, <laughs> We had a, a big kind of conversation last week because she has, based on my assessment, what's called REDS. So REDS is an acronym for Relative Energy Deficiency Syndrome in sports. Uh-huh. It's a really common thing um, with, uh, you know, with athletes when they're not getting enough calories to support their, I mean, first of all, health, right? That's the underlying yes. thing, right? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So if you, if you can't be, you know, if you're not getting calories to support your health and on top of that, you're exercising, something's going to give way. Right. Yep. Yeah. You're going to be catabolic. 
Yeah, for sure. So um, we talked about trying to get her to eat more. She doesn't like to eat, but you know, you know, in this reds is also the triad, the female triad, right? Yeah. Which could be like a, a, an issue, but with relative energy deficiency in sports, you have like all kinds of hormone things that go awry. Your immune system goes off. There's different degrees depending on what the, how many um, calories you're lacking, you know? So there's that to look at. Um, I have um, a vegan patient right now and it's really difficult to get her to eat more protein um, because a lot of times, you know, a lot of the, the micronutrients and macronutrients that you can get in a vegan diet have to come from carbohydrate sources, right? And that's going to cause weight gain. And, you know, that leads a whole other um, issue. So, um, so identifying these perpetuating factors to see how I can, how these needs to be addressed and then going from there. And then, um, you know, most of the time, I would say like 90, 95% of the time, you know, once you holistically correct all these things, people are, are going to improve. Um, and those, and those few percent that don't improve, then I might send to a physiatrist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's just a little bit of very rares. So go, let's go back to the rats. I'm interested by, by what you're, what I'm hearing here with the rats case. So this is a, something that I'm very curious about, which is um, a deficit in energy expenditure because of nutrition deficiencies. So intake. So, intake. so yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So yeah. Okay. So think of like this, okay. Draw a circle. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you're going to draw the circle into thirds. Okay. Two thirds of that circle is going to be your resting metabolic rate, right? So your metabolism, what runs your system, right? What keeps you just alive? Okay. That's based on your age, your sex, your height, your gender, and your lean body mass. Okay. And, and you know, if your thyroid's off, something like that too. Okay. So most of it is due to, to um, you know, these, these factors. Then, um, then you have another 30% is due to activity, right? So we have like formal exercise and something called NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Right. Okay. And then you have the last 10%, which is TEF or the thermic effect of food. So what I try to do with my, with my patients is I do a calculation to figure out their, their, um, BMR. Okay. Yeah. So then there's energy calculators that are fairly accurate, right? So you do what's called a TDE, a total daily energy expenditure calculation, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say for this athlete, it's like, you know, 1600 calories. Then I get an idea of what she's eating through like a a diet diary and I can figure out, okay, you are not, you are like at at a thousand calories. So not only are you not getting enough calories to support, you know, general health, you're not getting enough calories to support healing for sure and performance. And at that point, you're missing a lot of micronutrients because anything under 1200 calories puts you at risk for micronutrient deficiencies. So there's a a lot of things that need to be corrected here. Now, uh, in general, like most athletes that are professional or that are like higher end are motivated, right? But a teenage girl, maybe not so much, right? You know, it might be like something that, you know, now you're getting into like, disordered eating and other things like that, that might play a role right. as well. Well, but how many of these professional athletes actually have disordered eating? Oh, you'd be surprised. That had to be corrected, yeah, right? A lot right. Of well, because a lot of that too is like their drive is they're very, you know, some of it's almost OCD. Yeah. You know? I mean, pretty much, I don't want to say every figure athlete, but most people who are like figure competitors, bodybuilders, yeah. there is a lot of, you know, in the orthorexia, you know. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing. It's interesting. I've worked with athletes too. So it's an interesting conversation I've seen, especially in the uh, bodybuilding area, just like the stress of what, um, too much building of muscle and, um, imbalances with certain, you know, um, hypertrophy in some areas, atrophy in others, uh, and then the abuse of testosterone and the, you know, there's a lot of different things in this, but so with, you work a lot with nutrition, which I think is very important. And a lot of times people are not emphasizing that as much, you know, depends on the supplements, if they're more in the supplement realm or, um, so I'd love to know with like, how do you start the conversation with nutrition? So it sounds like you already do the assessment, which we, we kind of just talked about, but after that, where do you go with, um, working on nutrition? Sure. Okay. So. I'll use um, the calculus. So I have, again, I have another pyramid. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's not a pyramid scam. It's an, evidence- <laughs> <laughs> it's an evidence- evidence-based pyramid that I think a lot, um, I kind of got it from my, my studying with the IOC, International Olympic Committee, and the International, um, the Institute of Performance Nutrition, where I did some sports nutrition training. Yeah. So it's kind of a pyramid of prioritization. And again, the foundation is, is energy right so yeah. you know getting enough energy and then the next rung on that ladder in the pyramid are macros right the first one i go to is protein mm-hmm. and so i'm looking to see that somebody's getting um an athlete for sure um at least 1.6 grams per kilogram body weight and if somebody is actually going to be in a calorie deficit or again they're a vegetarian or vegan i'm going to go up to a gram per pound probably just to make sure that they're getting an enough, enough protein. Yeah. Makes me think of like vegan. What are some of your go-tos with their protein sources? So it's going to have to be like a pea and rice, like pro, if you're going to be look for like a powder, right. Okay. Uh, or soy products. Um, I'm going to look at things like, um, unfortunately, like you're going to have to look at like lentils, not unfortunately, but like lentils, quinoa, rice and beans, you know, the typical grain combinations, Again, that can cause a lot of digestive problems because of all the, the um, you know, carbohydrates that can be undigestible or hard to, to digest, right? True. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so um, there's looking at those tempeh is another good source, you know, that I'll, that I'll recommend. But uh, generally, there's going to be some to get that much protein and there's going to be some kind of supplementation a lot of times. You just answered my questions like... Can you do that vegan without supplementation? <laughs> or are you going to be really gassy? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> probably. Yeah. yeah. Microbiome disturbances we have today. So. Yeah. so there's the protein. Okay. Then I'm going to go to carbohydrates. And carbohydrates, again, are like, there's been so, such like a, a villainization of carbohydrates, right? Over the last decade. And um, so what I try to tell people is, because I have a lot of people coming to kind of show you keto, um, you know, like low carb. And the only time that like, I I'm looking at, um, metabolic flexibility for the first thing. Right. Yeah. So I want my, my patients to be able to, uh, use macronutrients or substrates, basically we're calling them for, um, uh, depending on their situation right. and, and be able to go back and forth. And they know that if you do like keto for too long, for example, you're going to down deregulate PDH, which is one of the enzymes in the Krebs cycle. So it's going to make you very inefficient at um, carbohydrate metabolism and can cause some problems later on over, you know, with chronic use, not to mention all the macro and micronutrients, you know, fiber and, um, 
you know, protein can be a problem sometimes in these people, but there's a lot of micronutrients that can be missing because you're not getting plants, right? Yeah. Right. So, so getting that metabolic flexibility. So with carbohydrates, I'm periodizing carbohydrates in and around exercise, right? So my goal is always to get people to exercise. So if somebody's sitting down and not exercising, more sedentary, yeah. you know, they can be on a lower carbohydrate diet. Like carbohydrates aren't carbs aren't an essential nutrient, right? You don't need to have carbs. Whereas protein, you need essential amino acids and fats, you need the two essential fatty acids, right? So I can play with the carbohydrates and I use them in order to help people perform, exercise and recover, right? Um, and I also use them strategically, um, like we were talking about before this, um, before we got online here, for um, people who wanna have more um, mitochondria support, right? Yeah. So let's say um, we're doing some intermittent fasting, right? Which isn't like uh, in terms of like a weight loss thing, it, it could be something like people say, should I do intermittent fasting to lose weight? Okay, well, if time-restricted eating is something that works for you, great. It's nothing magical, right? However, doing some intermittent fasting can give you some advantages in terms of, of uh, mitochondria biogenesis. So it's a really good way to increase your mitochondria. Right. And if you do fasted cardio, for example, or fasted training, um, uh, like in a carbohydrate-depleted state, you're going to stimulate molecular adaptations that result in mitochondria biogenesis. So that's really good, obviously, for health. And if you're an endurance athlete and you train low and compete high, not that kind of high, but, you know, high carbohydrate, right? You're going to um, have more mitochondria to use the energy that you give it. So you're going to, it's going to be like an ergogenic type of, of um, effect. Yeah, that's such a great, I love how you separate the categories of this to make it so easy to see uh, the biogenesis piece here. So, you know, like, okay, so, a complicated case with like somebody that is um, not getting enough calories, like the Rets patient, the, the your Rets client. How let's say she's wanting to to do like a um, a fasted cardio training. You know, how would you help her with that? Okay, so it's not going to be appropriate for that. I know, right? Just like it's probably not appropriate for somebody who's a bodybuilder, right? Right. Yeah, right. Because, you know, you have all these tools in your toolbox. You can't just take them out and give them to everybody. You got to use the right tool under the right circumstance. Mm -hmm. So training low is an endurance athlete aerobic type of thing, right? Somebody who's running a marathon, training for a triathlon, that kind of thing, right? And it's only something that you would do a couple of days a week, right? Because you also want to train hard in order to get adaptations too, right? So you're going to need your carbohydrates to train hard as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm um, getting back to health, right? The first thing is, you know, a lot of performance enhancement can be, can be achieved by becoming healthy, right? So yes. if you're getting enough calories, you know, I, I'm not going to throw in intermittent fasting until I notice, you know, or can see that you're eating appropriately in order to fuel your activity and fuel health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that makes total sense, total sense. Um, I want to know, like, what are some of the nutrition, like, so with your pyramids and stuff, you, do you yeah. use nutrition too? Do you use what? Do you use that with, do you use pyramid with nutrition, your nutritional analysis and, in uh, structuring the amount of what they should consume? 
Okay, okay. So, so getting back to so our macros now, right? Yeah, let's go back okay. to macros. Now. Okay, so we've got that number, a starting number of 1.6 grams per kilogram body weight. That's a pretty solid number based on, on the research right now. And if you look at some of the position stands from the International Olympic Committee and the, um, the, um, some of the sports medicine societies, and, and um, they all kind of come down to that. That is a, an evidence-based figure. Yeah. And looking at carbohydrates, carbohydrates is also a figure that you should do based on body weight and activity, right? So at the top end, somebody who's trained twice a day and is a professional athlete, okay, maybe 12 grams per kilogram body weight. That's an incredible amount of carbohydrates, right? Yeah. Um, versus the other end, maybe a, a, a um, physique athlete can get away with one or two grams per kilogram body weight, maybe a little bit more, depending on where they are in their their training regime. Like if they're cutting, maybe less, if they're trying to bulk up a little bit more. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's going to give me, you convert that to calories, right? Right. Once you know how many grams per kilogram body weight of, of, then you can multiply that by four, right. To get the calories. And then for fats, I'm just getting, making sure they have 20 to 30% of fat in their diet, good fats, right. You know, so like, um, uh, monounsaturated fats from extra virgin olive oil and, and avocado, um, maybe some um, nuts and seeds, cold water fish, uh, that kind of stuff. So getting the healthy fats in just to make up that other 20 to 30% of the diet, because if you don't get enough fats, then your hormones are affected. And, and um, you know, that can lead to other inflammatory, if there's an imbalance. So I'm trying to look at that balance between omega-3 and omega-6, making sure that, that the six to three is less than four to one, just to put them in, a, in an anti-inflammatory healing state right yeah. okay okay so then we're going to go to micronutrients so the micronutrients we're looking at vitamins minerals phytonutrients right so now if you look below if you have enough calories and you're getting a balance of the right macronutrients you can probably meet your micronutrient needs right so now we're you know we're talking about um you know a plant-based or plant-centric diet with lots of color, local, seasonal, organic, sustainable, a varied diet. Yes. You get enough micronutrients, right? Now, notwithstanding, you, now you got to look at the special populations, okay? Look, look at the vitamin D deficiency capital of the world, Seattle, right? We might need some vitamin D supplementation, right? Look at a vegan. We're going to need some omega-3s, right? Probably from a marine source like algae is going to be an optimal source, right? Yeah. Because that conversion rate of flax or hemp or dark green leafy vegetables um, isn't always going to be efficient to get it to where it needs to be. Okay. And then in getting all with all that color, you're going to get all those anti-inflammatory phytonutrients, right? That's again going to help with healing and repair and stuff. I'm not a big fan of anti taking antioxidants um, from a, like a, a, a um, supplement perspective mm -hmm. for, for two reasons. The first reason is when you are training, you're creating some tissue damage, right? Yes. Um, when you are injured, you have some tissue damage, right? Well, this tissue damage signals your body to heal, okay? So if you give your body too many antioxidants, right? Because you need a certain amount of that oxidation to stimulate healing, right? If you give too many of these things, then you're going to blunt either your training response or your healing response. So I'm really a food first kind of person. Try to get those, those nutrients from food if you can. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of blueberries, but what are your common sources of antioxidants? 
Okay. So basically for me, uh, in the morning, I'll do a, a big smoothie with blueberries. Um, my wife's got this, these other kind of red, uh, I don't know if you them from PCC in the frozen section. I forget what they're called, but they're like these little cubes, but again, high, high antioxidant. Um, I forget what they're called. And it's, well, so we'll throw in some flax seeds, some, something green, um, some protein powder, banana. Um, and that's uh, kind of like a, a typical smoothie. So you're getting, you know, you know, all those different colors, all those different phytonutrients, plant nutrients. And then, and then every, so I use like the healthy plate as my guide to help people. Okay. So, um, and that plate's going to change depending on the person, right? So let's say um, somebody's trying to heal or they're an athlete, you know, have the plate, cut it in half, throw your vegetables with lots of color on one half, divide the other half in half and put protein on one, on one part and then um, some starch on the other part. So that's a good way to, to help people. And then I'll play with the starch portion depending on what people's goals are and then um, go from there. So that would be more or less depending on whether they're trying to lose weight, gain weight, perform or recover. Oh yeah, that's a good point. So in terms of recovery, like, are there, do you design different uh, nutritional needs for uh, your different patients? Yeah, so, you know, with recovering, we're looking at like refueling, rehydrating, um, repairing. So it's the, like the R's, okay? So, um, and uh, you know, again, it's coming back to like, you know, before your, so that's the next rung on the ladder, okay? So we're talking about um, nutrient timing, right? So with nutrient timing, we wanna make sure that there's nutrients before an activity in order to fuel it and nutrients after the activity in only to recover and repair, right? Okay. And so, and again, you know, we've got that intermittent fasting or that train low where you're using um, uh, the nutrient timing in a different way, right? So, um, but so that's, that's the next rung. And then the last part of the pyramid, which is like that really top part are supplements. And the first thing I always do with my clients is I turn the pyramid upside down and say, we're not going to do it this way. It's shaky. You can't out supplement a bad diet or bad lifestyle. Right. So, yeah. um, and yeah. supplements are still, they're so synthetic. They're not regulated and they're going to, and a lot of them, a lot of people don't ask this question, but do they elicit an insulin response? They what? Do they elicit an insulin response? Yeah, you know, there's there's all kinds of things to you know to consider, and so you know, I'm going to use them some. It's not going to be my, you know, I, I I've had people come in to see me that have a bag full of supplements and they'll start <laughs> yeah. the supplements out, right? Because yeah. they want me to go through their supplements and and refine them, right? So it's it's like they'll I'll say, okay, you don't need this, you don't need this because you're already getting it here. And they say, well, I really like that. So sometimes by the time the visit's over, I haven't done anything because they want all their supplements. They basically want me to just kind of like tell them like, uh, you know, yeah, what you're doing is fine. Or I had one person that came in that was taking, you know, like 20 pills, you know, every day, you know, like, and I said, when do you have time to eat? Like, it's incredible. Or I'll go, I used to go out for breakfast with my dad when I was visiting Vancouver and he would take out this big thing of supplements, you know, and, and then proceed to have one of the worst things on the menu. And then, you know, it just doesn't work that way. Right. Oh, that's so well said. This is so well said. Yeah. So people think that supplements are, are mad, you know, they're not a magic bullet, right? Uh, no, that's so true. 
You know, and people can get sick from taking over 20 supplements a day. You can get esophagitis from that. Oh, and that's really problems, yeah. A whole bunch of hunger issues. Yeah. Now, curious, this, this brings a question. I wonder, because of your clinical experience, you've been doing this a lot longer. Um, do you ever see appetite affected by activity? Or sure. is that, or does that also proceed? Um, I mean... I know it's natural to biological normalcy to have hunger when we're really in tune with our body after we exercise, you know, but I feel like there's been a lot of, a lot of loss in understanding what our body's telling us. And so I was curious what you, what do you think about that? Well, let's, let's look at, um, let's look at the hunger thing, for example, after aerobic activity, right? So what's been really common. And I think what people think these days is I'm going to do some steady state cardio to lose weight. So they're going to get on a treadmill or, or an elliptical or whatever it was and, and work at a, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll see people just barely doing anything. They're talking on their phone or whatever, but sometimes they're working for 45 minutes to an hour, right? It's very inefficient. There's very little, you know, when you're, when you're looking at weight loss, um, you know, doing, using exercise to, for weight loss is not the way to do it. It's, you you got to do it with your food, right? Using oh. exercise to increase lean body mass so you can increase your metabolism and get healthy is, is a different scenario, right? But getting back to your point about exercise, so, you know, you're, you're on the treadmill, you've depleted your glycogen, you know, what do you want to do right away? You want to create something sweet or sugary, right? So you go to Starbucks and have a, you know, fraca macchino and drink back 500 calories in two minutes. Right. And it's, it's horrible. Yeah. It's like empty, empty calories, you know? Yeah. So like using, like, if you're trying to use macronutrients to help, for example, with like getting into like the weight loss scenario, right? Remember again, when we looked at that circle with the thermic effect of food, right? Protein has the highest thermic effect of food. What does that mean? It means like if you took, uh, let's say like, a piece of steak or a hundred calories worth of, of steak and a hundred calories worth of Captain Crunch, they're going to behave differently in your body, right? Yes. The steak is going to actually, you need to draw calories in order to break that down versus the Captain Crunch. If you're not using it, you're going to store it. And if you've had too much over the day, you're going to store it as fat. And so the, the issue with um, protein is it's also satiating, right? So those people who go on a high protein, high fiber, lower carbohydrate, healthy fat diet with resistance training as their primary source of exercise and maybe some walking as non-exercise activity thermogenesis, they're going to be really successful in becoming more metabolically efficient and, and their weight loss. Yeah, that's such a good point. The metabolic flexibility there um, and then what you're addressing with the protein and the exercise and activity. Um, you know, one thing I think I wanted to ask about was the carbs. So some people do see um, a mood impairment from low carb restriction. They see a decline in, you know, have you noticed this with uh, mood? They're a little yeah, bit for sure. yeah. more depressed or. Yeah. Yeah. So I like um, um, Jay uh, Tita. I don't know if I'm pronouncing the name right, but he, he came up with this acronym HEC, is your HEC in check. And so, um, I ask my patients, I say, okay, is your heck in check? Are you hungry? Is your energy low? Are you emotional or are you craving? And if your heck is in check, if you're getting adequate nutrition, you should be fine. Those are kind of physiological signs that your body's not getting adequate nutrition. If these things are out of balance, then we need to like adjust things because you shouldn't be hungry 
and you shouldn't be emotional. You shouldn't be hangry, right? Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. But what, with like fast metabolizers, like say, like say you have an athlete that's um, has a lot of my, mitochondria. They're very fit, um, but they're 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 not really training, but they're still staying in maintenance. Okay. What about what do you do with carbs there? What do you mean? There's when you say they're staying in maintenance. What does that mean? Like are um, they trying to lose weight or gain weight? What's their they're, goal? they're staying at the same um weight level. Okay, and they trying to lose weight? No. No. Okay. So what do I do with carbs? Yeah, maintain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Periodize it around their activity. So basically, if they're um, I just use I use it as fuel in order to fuel their activity and their recovery. So um, and then you know, if somebody's not just just a maintenance dose is again i'm going to use that one guide that's kind of zero to 12 grams per kilogram body weight depending on their activity mm-hmm. so it's it's going to be like you know if somebody's uh an aerobic athlete it's going to be probably somewhere you know five plus if they're a competitive athlete grams per kilogram body weight okay and then how, do you work with much diabetic population or anyone that has um maybe even just pre-diabetes? Yeah, so a lot of like um, with people who have type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes, those are people that are probably going to benefit from, I mean, I'm going to use the the same scenario here with the same pyramid, but I'm going to adjust it towards the lower end of carbohydrates. Okay, yeah. Do you see that challenging with them when they're, they're already on the, you know, dysglycemic problems? But, you know, you can, you get the type two diabetes is relatively easy to deal with if somebody loses weight, weight, right? You know, a lot of times these people have like, you know, metabolic syndrome. Yes. So, you know, so you get rid of the VAT, right? The visceral adipose tissue. And that's gonna, you know, that's a, a reservoir of inflammation, right? Oh, yeah. And so, you know, as you can do things like that, I'm a really big fan of resistance training. That's like my biggest, one of my favorite tools to get people to resistance train and then go on an adequate, you know, Mac, you know, adjust the macronutrients based on, on helping them to, to support their blood sugar. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, that's, do you use any, um, do you use any testing, um, like blood tests or anything like that for your macronutrients and micronutrients assessments? Yeah. I mean, so I'll do, uh, like the biggest, so I'll do like some direct testing, right? So we're looking at comprehensive metabolic panels and then some um, maybe some individual nutrients, depending on what the history might show me, right? Yeah. You know, CBC, iron, you know, fer- you know ferritin, um, vitamin D, that kind of stuff. Um, maybe magnesium, just depending on what's going on. And then um, I will, the two indirect tests that I, or three indirect tests that I will use a lot of times are from Genova. So I might use the, uh, the stool effect test or the GI effects test. Um, I might use a neutral valve test and I might use the, um, the adrenal test. Um, just to get an assessment, again, depending on what's going on with the person to see what's, um, where they might be missing something functionally. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I find those as helpful, uh, measures too, just to help them see it if they need, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's go into, in this ending to, um, kind of talk about what your, your rehab programs like, and, and, you know, obviously there's a whole theme already of how you 
your initial assessment um, and then where the person's going and their goals. Um, and then with rehab, if you could talk a little bit more about that, that'd be awesome. Okay. So let's, um, let's go back to that, uh, like a tennis elbow, for example. Sure. Okay. So, um, so a typical rehab would be like uh, making sure they're on an anti-inflammatory diet. Okay, mm -hmm. I might recommend um, some contrast hydrotherapy, like to get some circulation to the area. So alternating hot and cold. Okay, I might recommend a topical CBD type of preparation, maybe just to like some for some relief. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, you know possibly like increasing their protein or maybe some collagen or having them take collagen um, before their um, doing their rehab at home in order to create like a, um, have it available in the system, right? So when they go to exercise, it can come, it can be like a target for the nutrients. So there's a guy named Barr and he came up with a good study on, on using collagen uh, with uh, um, resistance training or isometrics or any kind of like rehab. Okay. Okay. So um, again, so that now we're getting to like, what am I going to give them to take home? So probably like in that case, show them how to use a tennis ball to release their um, locally, the tight um, wrist extensors. Right. Um, I might, depending on whether there's range of motion issues in the shoulder or neck, we'll also do some things to address that as well. Okay. Right. Um, I'll get them to do some band exercises to strengthen some of the wrist exercises, the wrist uh, muscles that might be weak. Okay, mm -hmm. shoulder muscles that might be weak. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, or we might do isometrics, right? So in isometric, I, mean, I would get them like to hold against resistance, okay? Mm -hmm. And then I might get them to do like um, something a little bit more functional, like um, for example, like uh, have them do like a plank and then go into like uh, with holding um, a dumbbell, for example, and then go to like a twist or something like that, just to get some different movement patterns. Uh, in the body where they're using their upper extremities. And what metrics are you using to identify, um, you know, let's say if they have pain or they still have the pain or um, just how, how the whole, like, for example, the tennis elbow, how the whole girdle is doing in terms of the whole mo movement pattern itself. Yeah. So I'm going to recheck their range of motion mm -hmm. and look at their movement patterns mm -hmm. yeah, just to see that things are changing. Okay. Do you use any uh, testing, uh, any testing for that or like um what do you mean like what are you thinking uh there's uh, okay, so, so let's, let's back up okay tech so tools, tech tools of looking at like what uh where areas are weak or not that kind of thing i know you have your clinical uh physical exam maybe i use my hands for the most part so like okay if somebody's not improving i'm gonna take an x-ray or an MRI or, or like refer them up for an ultrasound you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. So, but like in terms of tech tools, um, I mean, the only tech, big tech tool I'll use, I'll use an instrument to do instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization. People think, call it Graston. Yeah, um, Graston, okay. Yeah. So, I'll, you know, that's kind of a tech tool. I might use blood flow restriction, but that would be part of the, like the rehab in terms of like the strengthening, right? But in terms of like my assessment, um, it's mostly going to be like, palpation inspection range of motion muscle testing yeah movement patterns yeah that's good that you actually do the hands-on piece and really analyze that so you mentioned blood restriction um i'd love to know about that because people ask about bands you know yeah. and 
exercise. What's your, what, what is your view on that? Yeah. So there's a lot of research out on blood flow restriction. It's got to be done properly. Right. So there's specific cuffs that you would put um, on the upper and lower extremities. Right. Uh. And you're inflating the cuffs and there's usually a formula that helps you to figure out which, where you're going to inflate to. And then you're going to have people uh, do exercise. So you're going to get a really big systemic effect by doing this and you're going to get a local effect. So part of the healing that goes on is from the systemic effect, not just the local effect. So, so what does this actually do? So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's increasing different metabolites within the muscle that's stimulating adaptations to occur. So you're getting, of course, lactic acid, you're getting a change in the pH. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you're getting this, this lack of blood supply, which ends up turning into a really big increase in circulation to the area. So a lot of, again, is, is, is adaptations through, uh, through um, chemical stimulation that's produced as a result of training with restriction, as well as um, the systemic effect and the circulation effect. Yeah, I'm just thinking about um, anoxia being dangerous, though. Like, I mean, you got to do this under supervision, yeah. Yeah, you're not you're not doing things to the point where you're cutting off like venous return, you know, and like that. It's just you're cutting it off enough so you you're exercising at a much less intensity. That's the whole thing with this that makes it beautiful is that somebody who's got an injury they can't exercise intensely, but if you throw a cuff around their extremity, they don't need to. Or because you're putting that that strain there, a little bit of strain there, right? You just yeah, you're just creating they can't exercise intensely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you're no. doing low, you know, low, low load, high, you know, higher like repetition. Okay. Yeah. So um I think that's a fascinating because you know, people do this stuff without doing it right. <laughs> so Anyway. And you got like you got to look at again. There's another pyramid, okay? <laughs> now, all those, okay. At the bottom of this is the pyramid of of recovery, okay? So nutrition, sleep, stress management, foundation, right? Toys at the top, like cold immersion, you know, blood flow restriction, that kind of stuff. Um, compression garments, you know, they're at the top. Yeah. Know? Manual therapy somewhere, you know, in the middle towards the top, you know, proper training and periodization again is, is important as well. Yeah. I want to see all these pyramids. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Dr. Lukoven, thank you so much for your time. Where can we find you? Um, you can find me at my website at www.drgeoffleccovin.com. Um, where I've got a lot of articles and information. You can find me at my clinic in Kirkland uh, off Central Way, just downtown Kirkland. And you can find me at the gym every morning at 4.45. What gym? I go to base camp, but it's actually being changed over to like some kind of, uh, I think they call it um, um, some bodybuilding outfit bought it. So it's um, it's in Kirkland. Huh. Yeah. Let's go 4.45, huh? 4.45 or I'm a 5.45-er. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. If there's one thing you would say for anyone who's wanting more um, support and living healthy and, and um, being active, what would you say? I would say follow the speed principle. Okay. 
The S stands for getting a, pro, a good amount of sleep, right? The P stands for managing your psychological stress. Mm-hmm. The E stands for making sure that you don't have environmental toxins that you're exposed to, like obesogens, estrogen, disrupting chemicals, and so on in your self-care products and foods. Yeah. Okay. The other E stands for exercise, so getting adequate exercise, and then tailoring your exercise based on your specific goals and adaptations that you're looking for. And the D is diet, getting a good, optimum, varied, balanced, farm-to-table, seasonal, organic diet. Awesome. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you. I love the breakdown there. That's a, a, a very easy acronym to remember. So. Okay. Yeah. Thanks awesome. for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much.